Hello. Welcome to the third episode of Artists of Hill House. I'm Sean Toomey from about45degrees.org. Hill House is an artist residency provided by Crosshatch Center for Art and Ecology. Located outside beautiful East Jordan, Michigan, Crosshatch has been providing artists of all disciplines with a quiet place on the edge of the Mackinac State Forest to relax and focus on their work without interruption or restriction. Successful applicants are awarded residencies that range from two to four weeks, and artists are in residence year-round. Just over 200 artists apply each year, and fewer than 10% are selected by an independent jury of working artists and professors from a variety of artistic disciplines. More info on Crosshatch, the Hill House Artist Residency, and their many other programs can be found at crosshatch.org. Every two weeks, I'll be presenting a pair of extended interviews with current and former artist residents talking about their work and lives. The podcast will conclude with updates on the residents, previews of new works, and information on the artist's upcoming events. It's okay, wash away every trace, what remains. It's okay, it's not too Episode 3 opens with an interview that I recorded with the musician Jennifer Crichton. We'll also listen to a couple tracks from her new album, and then I'll wrap up the episode with a new song from Eric Jarvis called Crew. Please stick around. Wake the spirit. Jennifer Crichton is a songwriter, harpist, and singer who has just released her new album, Hermitess, which she wrote in January of 2015 while in residency at Hill House. Jennifer is also a visual artist and curator who has a deep commitment to working collaboratively to improve our collective fates. Jennifer has been a staple in the Calgary indie music scene, playing in Dead Horse, The Constant Sea, and Devonian Gardens. Hermitess is her first solo release. Jennifer and I spoke via FaceTime in June of 2017. Special thanks to Jennifer for recording her side of our conversation. Her levels were perfect. Do you think that the timing of your residency had an impact on your experience at Hill House? Um, and I'm thinking of it in terms of the time of the year that you were there and also where you were in your life creatively and perhaps maybe emotionally. Oh, definitely. I had applied for a residency and they had said they would like to give me one, but um, they were all full. So they put me on a waiting list. And it was kind of like I had had not a great time uh, towards the end of my last band um, process. So a, a group of members I really love, but just a lot of difficulty at the end of that album cycle with those guys. And I kind of came to this point in my life where I was ready to um, 
to do something that was just my own. The reason that I was attracted to <laughs> to Island at the point, which has now become Crosshatch, is because they were so involved in community and they were doing so many neat things. They were doing things with food. They were doing things with the local environment. They were doing things with permaculture. So that really attracted me. But the interesting thing is that I chose that residency far away in the winter, isolated, because I'm one of those people. I'm a person that has been very involved in my community that's given a lot and I had identified that I needed to kind of pull back my tentacles and just do something for myself. But what was nice is that I could do that in an organization that still really had the values that I had been, uh, that I value in my own community. But at that time, I needed to step back from my community and do something where, you know, be somewhere where no one could be like, oh, can you work on this thing? Or what's your advice on that? Or So that was really nice to be able to do that because I was feeling quite burnt out at that point when I went there and like I wasn't sure if I felt like I'd let my own fields go fallow for so long that you know I was gonna have to pull out weeds for three years or something um so I went there with a fair amount of misgiving about um my own value as an artist um and my own ability to carry a project that I put my stamp on through from beginning to end because I had always done things within a group of people kind of as like one of a band of people, um, you know, either artistically or musically. And that's always been the case. I've been very fond of working collaboratively. So one of the reasons I named the project The Hermitess and um, chose to do it in the way that I did was because I, I had to make these very strict rules for myself to kind of give myself this to like expand the borders of what had been my own territory out enough that I could make my own work there. So, um, and you know, being totally alone is not a problem for me. It's something I really love. So I really enjoyed, I wasn't really afraid about going out there and being by myself. I was really looking forward to it. What I was afraid of is more um, getting work done while I was there without this kind of constant kind of extracurricular things. Yeah, <laughs> it was good. It was um, good to be so isolated. It was good for it to be so harsh. I would love to go back at a time of year when there's more going on and the forests in bloom and there's mushroom hunting and things happening. Um, but that was the right time for that record, um, the right time of year, um, really good timing. It was kind of like a life raft where I was like, if I don't do something now, I'm going to keep going the way I am and just get more and more burnt out. So I had to make a really specific commitment and, and make really strong boundaries for myself around what I was trying to accomplish and being away, but having the support of um, Crosshatch really made that possible. Wow. I love that. You know, what really struck me just now is when you, well, the idea, you brought up the idea of, of having been fallow and, and that's something that I think, um, resonates throughout the entire album, this question of what happens in order to like focus energy in order to germinate and then the blooming. And there's, so there's these movements between opening and closing that I see. But I never thought about the idea of being fallow and the problem that maybe weeds could sprout up during that fallow time. And And could you talk a little bit about that? Because this is just... This is extraordinary, I think. 
Well, yeah, I think one of the things that I've ended up talking about a lot in the lead up to this album, as I've discussed it with other people, is intentionally making an emptiness and having that be um, like, I had a friend tell me that maybe I was doing all of this collaborating and stuff because I was afraid of being alone with my own work, which was fairly prophetic, I thought. But when I started that work of like, you know, it's not weeding a field that has been untended for a long time. It's not an easy process. You know, there are prickly things there. There are people who um, have grown accustomed to growing in the space you've given them. And when you say you need it back for yourself, it's not necessarily uh, a pleasant process all the time. Um, so the, the that character of the Hermitess is... She is kind of like a classic sort of like seer or witch that says certain things or needs to say certain things. And the response, even though those things are truthful, is not always a positive response. But it's also the recognition that those things need to be said. And I think we're so so preoccupied right now with filling every space, making sure we're always busy, making sure our life looks great on social media, that we don't actually give ourselves, like, we don't empty the space so we can put something new in it. So it's just like this, it's like, you know, um, emotional pack ratism or something, um, where we just like, we, we're afraid to have any point where we like let things um, be still and quiet. And not only that, but like, we're not, you know, a fallow field, ideally, I would think you would plant a crop that's not meant to be productive, but is still helping the land. So you need to tend um, an empty space to make sure it stays empty or weeds will get in. So you can't just like let it go and see what happens. You actually have to maintain emptiness in order for it to be um, useful when you come to the point of planting that field with something that you hope will bear fruit. I guess I never really thought through the metaphor beyond just sort of taking it at face value that this would be this time of maybe weathering out the winter so that you can be ready in the spring. I love the photograph on the cover and the the way that she's facing away from us um, as the viewer doesn't seem to be that she's turned her back on us, but maybe actually it looks more like she's more self-contained and introspective. And it's almost like we have come upon her, like this unguarded moment. And do you feel like the Hermitus persona is reaching out to you through the songs or that perhaps you are invoking her or are you joining together in the songs? I think it's both. I think one of the things um, that came out of that I mean, one of the things that comes out of any time of prolonged quiet, like meditation does that, and for me, being in nature does that, is that you start to hear, like, your internal dialogue. And at the beginning of that process, you, there are a lot of things you've internalized that are not your sort of higher self or however you would say it. They are things that you've absorbed from other people, other opinions. So I went out there with a lot of that noise. I went out there with a lot of misgivings about my own creative worth because of my history up until that point. And I had to then go 
like keep digging, keep listening to all of that stuff, but then learn to differentiate the timbre of those inner voices between the things that were sort of misgivings and then the things that were sort of deep wisdom or whatever. So on the record, there are two voices. There's I give voice to both of those. So there's the the chatter in your head that says, you know, like you messed up, you haven't done things right, you're you're worthless or whatever, um, you're foolish, you're um, you're not worth it. Those kinds of voices, and then also the ones that are saying just like be quiet and listen, and like the 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 biggest voices, the the ones on the kind of psychedelicish tunes where I I just am listening to nature and I'm hearing so much more in it than you you know it's like becomes a symphony when you when you stop everything and you just stand and you hear the trees and they're all clacking and you hear the birds in the trees and you hear the snow falling I mean those things are all in that photograph I walked out that day with my tripod and I just saw that arch tree and I thought I'm just going to set my tripod up and I'm going to set the timer off and then I'm going to walk under that tree Um, the way I did many days in the forest, I did many of those kinds of photographs, but that one just for whatever reason, it was like, I just got tuned into this zone and I saw the right shape in the trees, which maybe I hadn't, which I'd maybe walked by that point many times in the past and not seen. So I guess it's that those, like, they're all part of there. There's a societal voice, there's a personal voice, there's the emotional voice. And then there's the kind of like the great everything voice. (laughs) (laughs) And they're all valid and they're all interesting and they all say things about your experience and they all um, uh, have lessons, but they, it's also learning to tune into, I think sometimes we tune into one, we get attuned to tuning into one frequency, which is maybe not so healthy uh, and tuning out other ones, or we're afraid to listen to things because they have something real to say to us. Um, So it's about pulling apart all those different threads you know, when you see your voices in your head, it sounds like you're crazy. Um, sort of like clinically speaking, voices in your head is something you don't want. But I think it's a fear of actually listening to them and understanding what they say about your inner life that actually causes them to be things that then control you. Whereas if you listen to them and acknowledge them and give them the t- give, actually give them enough silence to be heard... Sure, some of them are going to be scary or dark or weird or freaky, but you're also going to hear those other voices, which, you know, that kind of piling hoarding of emotional information often drowns out. So you, in order to listen to the, like, really clear note, which is, like, coming through from whatever, <laughs> this is getting really esoteric, but you have to also give time to all those other voices and what they're saying. I I love that. I mean... One of the things that I think is so remarkable is that you can feel the respect for all of these different parts of yourself, and they don't feel at war. It doesn't seem like they're fighting for dominance. It feels like there's room for all of them to exist until you sort of find your way. And also, I wonder, um, like your song Vampires is very much both a warning and a lament. Do you feel it's possible to heed that warning of protecting yourself by removing the vulnerability that you have without feeling regret? That song I actually wrote I wrote when I came back. That was the one song I didn't write on the residency and it was it was sort of coming back to the work of 
actually making the record. And it's an interesting song because it has like a very literal, like it was a very literal response to something, but it also, I find that with all of my songs, I kind of, they'll, I'll be inspired to write them by a sort of very specific event, but then as I'm writing them, they become about so many other things that it's almost as if that one event is just the seed. And then they sometimes loop right back around. So they're in response to say getting hurt or something. And then within them, there's a message about seeing the, that situation from a totally different point of view, which it changes my feelings of hurt about it. So I feel like that song is kind of about that. I sort of knew it at the time, but um, just about when you give your energy to things, you're always putting yourself in danger. But if you don't, you never get to have this experience of being part of something which is bigger than yourself. So I think the warning in that song is like, make sure that what you're giving your time and energy to is worth it. And I think that's sort of the lesson of finding that quiet space is you can't just keep filling that space. You have to you have to be conscious about what you're giving your time to and and if it, you really want that thing. Because you can kind of give yourself away really easily without knowing what you're giving yourself over to. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like we are in a time where we're giving out more energy than we have ever ha- have before to all sorts of things in all sorts of ways where we, we don't actually know that the energetic cost that those things are taking from us until we're kind of like like at the outer limits of what we can actually give and and that it's at that point that we see like oh like because I've done this I no longer have any energy left for the things that I really want to do um so yeah I guess the warning in that song is like make sure that what you give yourself to is worth the time and the energy you've given it um otherwise you're gonna be (laughs) a dried out old husk Julia Purcell was um, another resident artist who I interviewed, and she talked about how many of the Appalachian folk songs would be sung while doing specific daily tasks or chores. And many of your songs on Hermitess seem not only to be about certain actions, but they seem to be specifically written to be used to accompany certain actions or undertakings. And also, they seem to be written to actually bring about these very specific outcomes. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about about them. It's almost like they're, I see them as ways of assuring you that you're where you need to be, but also creating the safety or, or helping you get to where you are safe. Hmm. That's an interesting... It's an interesting reading of it because um, obviously when I'm playing the songs, the nature of playing the harp is, it's, you know, physically demanding on my hands. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm a person who grew up with a lot of handwork. So I, in my other, I'm a visual artist and I also do textile art and I do a lot of cooking. I think perhaps... I'm thinking about that a lot. When I'm doing almost anything, I'm doing it with my hands. So a lot of the metaphors that I have woven into my songs have to do with that preoccupation of mine. 
So um, it's, I think many of the songs are, are like they are about tuning into like each individual voice and like trying to figure out what it's telling me. They're also, there's also often an, some kind of activity associated with that voice. Um, if that, sometimes that comes out in the metaphor of the song, like tender is like, it's about the breakdown of a friendship, but it's also about gardening. Um, Cause I saw that metaphor in there about the things that you, you know, that you are taking care of that you think are, you have entitlement to because they, you brought them, you created the environment for their like life. Um, but that they can be picked by anyone and how surprising and distressing that can be. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it, that's sort of, there's a similar warning in that song. Like there is in vampires that like, you can think you're, you're investing in one thing or that you're putting work into something with the intention of harvesting it. And then it can get harvested by someone else and, and how there's a sense of betrayal there, but it's also like, you know, that's the way it is. That's the way life is, which is, you know, it's a very frustrating part of life, but it's also a reality. And like, in, in effect, the real benefit of that, that action isn't like that you got to like eat a juicy peach at the end of it. It's like that you were there to tend that thing for its whole life. Like that's the message of the song is like, be tender, not like you get to like harvest which I think is, it's, that's one of those songs where I sort of wrote from the point of view of feeling like I had, something had been taken from me. But then by the end of the song, I realized that the thing that I was doing to make that thing was the actual value of the process. <laughs> and I, I also feel like in a lot of cases, we think we have a very um, results-based society. I think consumerism is results-based. It's like you work all this time and then you get this thing and the thing is great. And like, wait, I have all these nice things. Whereas I think the actual, maybe the actual reason why we're feel like our lives are empty and meaningless is because it's the doing the, the things that you do to get the things that are actually the things that have meaning. So like, you know, if you're working, people are working all the time and they hate their job and they're, and they're working and they hate their job, but they have things they like, then the most, the biggest part of their time that they're spending is not with their things. It's with the work that they're doing. And if the work they're doing is unsatisfying, <laughs> then their life, even though they might have great things has no meaning. Right. So, and then there might be people who have nothing, but they love the work they're doing. So I think those activities, there's like gardening. I have another song that didn't make it on this record, which is about, a meal uh they're all about sort of being where you are and that also is a big gift of having enough time and space to just be present where you are with what you're doing and hopefully and I think there's a kind of zen to that too the way you said that the songs are kind of like prayers or I kind of think of them as spells or incantations to just kind of get you thinking maybe about just one thing and I think music often does that in general. It's like a very um, common form of magic where people don't really know why it works or exactly what the mechanism is and different music works on different people in different ways. But ultimately it kind of takes you to some space that maybe you can't get without it. I see a lot of that in these songs, like the song Setting Bones. Could you maybe explain how you came to write that and how um, it fits in the album? That song is probably 
the most obvious like song that's tuning into the chatter and being like this and I also had another friend tell me like all that stuff that you hear all that negative speak that's in your own mind it's not your voice which is not I don't think totally true but I I sort of zoned in on it and separated it out and was like oh yeah this is not helpful this is like me saying you know like all the stuff you say that you're not good enough you can't do this it's the end of the world nothing good is going to come of anything and that's also why that song is like so ridiculously brief i wanted to make it as short as it as it is because i don't want you to dwell on it but also because i think it's like in the same way that i'd gone far away from my community to go work on this project somewhere in another supportive community that didn't know my history and didn't know all the other things that I do or whatever, uh, to kind of have an unbiased zone. Um, that song talks about like kind of a clean break where you maybe misstepped or you made, a, um, you didn't identify as soon as you should have that the situation you were in wasn't totally healthy or beneficial. And you can prolong that for so long just by giving yourself a hard time about having made that mistake. And one of the reasons you prolong that is because you're afraid of the pain it will cause to tell people you're not the person they thought you were, or you can't give them the thing you thought you could give them. So you keep walking on the break until it heals, but it doesn't heal right. So you have to re-break it again in order to make the bone set properly so you can then use that leg again in the way that you're hoping to. And the longer you walk on it and say, oh no, I'm fine, like this is, it's just, it's just a mild sprain or whatever, the more you threaten your ability to actually do what you're supposed to do with that thing. <laughs> or you learn to make an adaption. The most extreme thing you can do is choose to re-break yourself in the same way so that you can then heal yourself in the way that works for you. <laughs> so it's about adaptation, but it's also about kind of a reset that is sort of violent. Yes. Yes, very much so. It's like the voices are almost, I mean, it has the feel of like a nursery rhyme and like almost like a, like a fairy tale. The voices definitely seem like they are coming from a place of greater wisdom and it's not what you want to hear but they're also going to sort of like guide you through it and this almost feels like the way that it sounds they're providing enough of a distraction that you can go through the process without actually thinking about it like their voices are taking up the room that would otherwise maybe be used for you to have doubt and so it served as this oddly comforting song but I was almost like bracing myself in a way <laughs> well even the the mechanism of the song is supposed to be you know it's at a weird time signature and it kind of moves too fast and too slow at the same time and and I purposefully didn't make it tighter because of that because I wanted it to kind of be like herky-jerky but also have a kind of rep like a lot of the songs on this album have a lot of repetition. They're kind of drone-like. They have a repeated pattern on the harp and then they have an overlaid repeated pattern in the vocals. They're supposed to be a little hypnotizing, hopefully. But that one in particular, because it's kind of just like, it's a snap, but it does that. It's like a very quick repetition of this weird pattern um, that hopefully is, at some point, is broken and reset, if that makes sense. 
But I think a lot of fairy tales and nursery rhymes have like a moralistic lesson or something in them too. So it's interesting you make that analogy because there, I think there is, you know, like what is it ring around the rosy is about not dying from the plague. Like it, there's some, <laughs> so yeah, like a few of the songs like vampires too has like a warning in it about um, like, if you keep repeating this pattern in the same way, you're putting yourself at risk. Um, but at the same time, there's a purpose there's still a purpose to doing it. Like you still get something out of it, even if in the, in some ways there are many, you're going to make many mistakes in life. And then uh, the other side of that, like you can't really do it without making mistakes. So you kind of just have to, I think we give ourselves a hard time about the ways in which we have not fulfilled our own expectations. And it's bad when those things happen, but it's not necessarily useful to keep, like sometimes we repeat the pattern even because we're like, we haven't figured out exactly what the mechanism is and you can't really see what something's value is in your life until you can kind of pick apart what actually happened. And that can be really hard sometimes to figure out, okay, well, what actually did I do that like, that has caused this like repercussion of things in my life? For me, it was getting out of chatter and getting out of other people's opinions and getting out of that kind of allowed me to kind of pull those things apart. But um, I think we do that a lot. And sometimes because we're afraid of hearing what that thing actually has to say, which is like a giant, like you messed up because <laughs> we just don't want to hear that. We just like, we just like let it go on in the background and we put all this other stuff on top of it. Um, or we fill that space. We kind of jam that space with other sounds so we can't hear that, that underlying pattern repeat and continue to do its damage. <laughs> Some of your songs seem to function more like doorways, and others feel to me like an embodiment and exploration of an emotional or psychological state. Could you talk a little bit about how you structured the album and how the songs themselves informed its shape? Part of it had to do with the fact that I wrote more songs than I put on the record, which was nice to be able to do. I had a rule when I was at the residency that I would try and write one song a day and I didn't totally stick to that but especially towards the end because I wanted to continue working on some of the other songs that I'd written but I I learned in art school or I kind of identified in art school when I used to do a lot of drawing that it was worth finishing every drawing even if you didn't like it because you start out with this idea of like I want to have 
this vision and you have this picture in your head and then you start working on it on paper and it doesn't look anything like the picture in your head and you're upset with it because it doesn't match the picture in your head. But that doesn't mean it's not a good drawing. And I think if you push past the point where you're like, oh, this isn't turning out the way that I wanted it to turn out and actually finish it, it might actually turn out better than you were thinking or just different. It might take you in a different direction. I think we, a lot of the time we like, I have to do this thing in this way. And if it doesn't work out like that, then it's a failure. So I made this rule with myself that I would, that whatever song I did, I would just take the time to finish it. And, and then once it was sort of together, then I could, pass judgment on it if I really wanted to. Um, <laughs> in terms of, you know, I just wouldn't give up with things halfway through. And that has proved to be a good method. And also because when you take out all your distractions, there's like a lot of time in the day. So I did spend a lot of time cooking. I spent a lot of time walking out in the forest, but I, f I figured just like in my normal life, I could like fill a whole day with like random stuff to do and not ever write a song. So I made this rule, not only that I would try and work on a song a day, but that I would try as much as possible to get it as close to finished as I could within a day. Cause you know, when you have nothing else to do and you're by yourself in a forest and there's no one around for miles, really, you know, if you can't make that rule for yourself, <laughs> like, and you know, I felt, I, I was listening to the podcast you did, um, your first podcast, you sort of feel like you do have a responsibility because you've been given this wonderful gift to really like make your time useful. So I felt like I needed structure to get those things done. In terms of how they all went into the album, I did feel like I had this character and that she had certain things that she had to say. And then I had certain things that I needed to say. And then there were some things that that context asked me to say. So between those two things, the things that the character, the sort of archetypal things that like the witch outcast would say, um, which are also were reflected in my own experience, obviously, like it, it's not like a hokey kind of theater storytelling or whatever. It, those are all genuine things that I just use that archetype to kind of refine the boundaries of that story. And yeah, and then there were more off things that I was feeling or, or experiences that I wanted to write a song about that fit within that narrative. And, and then I said there were, there were songs just about being in that space and going through what I went through in that moment. Um, and there were songs that I wrote that probably will find a life outside of this record that just didn't fit in that story or they were, they would have fit in that story, but it would have required a bit more work to make them fit. Um, they were still about the place. Um, they were, you know, they were, they were still kind of part of that experience, but they didn't fit as well into that narrative. Um, and because I'd like taken the time with all of them, I'm, I, w I didn't have an issue with leaving them behind. It was really nice to be able to select from a group of songs that I thought were really strong, all of them, rather than being like, oh, I'll put this one on because I need like a little bit more space, or I'll kind of tweak this one to make it fit. Like, it was nice to work from a point of view of like just having an abundance of, of material and then getting to really choose the best ones. Um, and I've always written this way where I kind of just sit down and write when inspiration strikes me, which has been useful, but because of the distracticon of the world right now and like having my phone and whatever going on social media, and it's been harder to do that. Like I used to be a religious 
illustrated journal keeper and all of this stuff. And a lot of this stuff has fallen by the wayside as I've gotten older and had more responsibilities, but also as my responsibilities in my off time have grown the way they have with our technology. So I, I was also one of my misgivings when I went to the residency was like, can I write like that? Can I just be like, okay, every day I have to write a song. And it was really very um, reassuring to, to, realize that the real problem isn't like inspiration at all. It's just having the time and quiet to get the work done. So when you actually like give yourself that space, like I said, then you can fill it. Like if you don't give yourself the space, you got no room to work in. So I definitely think I will do that again. Like I often collect little pieces of songs and bits and ideas and I record them on my iPhone or whatever. But I, I do, I really value the time to sit down and like, and be like, okay, this, my job today is just to finish this song and to work through the point where you're like, oh, it's terrible. I hate it. And hopefully come out on the other side. It's wonderful though, because I think it's very easy to get lost in just the everyday the ways that we check in on, on the different social media. And you can, because you're constantly giving these updates, it's easy to lure yourself into thinking, perhaps, that it would fulfill the same function as a journal. But because it's public and because, you know, what we choose to share is is edited in a very different way than, than something that we would be doing just for ourselves, um, I think it's really easy to delude ourselves into thinking that we're maintaining that sort of personal enrichment and fulfillment um, when actually maybe we're, we're not. Well, and the thing I've learned too is you just can't skimp on time. Like all of the, most of the social media we have today is designed to be able to be done very quickly, to be done in short format. And all of those things are really interesting. Like I think, for instance, Twitter's really good for advancing a conversation very quickly because someone's not going on and on and on and on and on, right? I think I'm, I'm not a person who's like, social media is bad because it's part of our life. It's technology we developed. We developed it because we had a desire for it. And obviously it has some purpose, which I think there are really interesting things about social media, but I also think it has to be balanced you cannot skimp sometimes when it comes to just taking the time to do something. Like I feel very strongly that way about cooking. I feel like people are saying, oh, I don't have time to cook. But like when there was no other alternative, people got it done. And also like what better way to spend your life than like giving yourself time to do the things that you really, really care about. We have found so many ways to talk ourselves out of doing that. And that's so sad. <laughs> How did you choose the other instruments in Hermitas? Um, well, I was lucky that I recorded at this really amazing studio that's just outside of Calgary. And the person who owns that studio has has a collection of historical instruments and sort of unusual, not necessarily just historical, but sort of unique instruments um, and also recording gear. So I was lucky enough to get to record there and those instruments were there. So that's part of it. Uh, there are some sort of instruments you'll never get to hear a live show played on because they're rare, unique historical instruments that, that can't leave his mini museum he has in his recording studio. But I also very consciously wanted the record to have sounds that were not identifiable, uh, like easily as sort of, oh, well, that's a 
Korg organ or that's I wanted it to be kind of unplaceable in some ways. There's also a friend of mine who um, collects really amazing weird instruments. He also plays the harp and he plays hurdy-gurdy on the record, which wasn't a resident in that collection. It was his own instrument. And now when we play live, he also plays the hammer dulcimer, which is amazing. I had just come out of a project. There was a lot of it was a kind of classic band, and I was the one playing the weird instrument. So I just wanted to have a different quality to the record. And by having those instruments that are not normal in a kind of pop music record or whatever it is that I've made, um, I thought I could kind of also kind of break people out of like, oh, this is what this sounds like. It's going to be drums, bass, guitar. It's going to have a singer or whatever. I kind of wanted... I wanted to unsettle people a little bit by not really knowing how the sounds were made, maybe. And because of that, setting them into kind of free association of how they would choose to reference it or what they choose to tie the meaning of the record to, I guess. It, it's interesting. I mean, it didn't necessarily make me feel like there was a dislocation for me, but what what I was reminded of were these feelings that, I had felt before. And so that was really a treat. Like it wasn't like the like the instruments themselves were not pointing me in a certain direction, but it was really just the mood and the feeling and the tonality and oh, and the chanting too and the repetition of the voices. Yeah, and that was fairly deliberate because I had that sense that like I was tuning into voices, my own voices or voices I imagined or voices of society or whatever. So I did want the choir part of the record and they're called my witch choir affectionately. The women that perform with me both on the record and, and when I play shows. I didn't want to simply overdub my own voice um, on all the tracks. There are a few that I do very de deliberately because they it just worked for that tune. Seemed like it was me sort of talking to myself but for me, it was an active community, too, because a lot of the people that I asked to sing with me were people that I had a existing musical relationship with. So it was also a way of kind of like acknowledging them for the the way in which they've contributed to my my musical self up to this point. The other part of it is the harp. I've played the harp since I was 10 years old, but I didn't want this to be quote harp girl record so I did do and I have throughout my history of playing the harp tried to put the harp in a context which is I mean in some ways some of the medieval instruments and stuff put it kind of in a more historical context but also in a context where it's not just very harp forward in terms of just like girl in her harp vibe I play an electric harp so I wanted the harp to sound kind of different and I wanted to give undertones for it like some of the synths and stuff are like just give it a kind of different vibe than you would normally hear a harp put in, I would hope. The harp has a lot of very weird cliches that go along with it that I have mixed emotions about. Um, so yeah, a lot of my promo photos don't have a harp in them because I just didn't want that to be super obvious. I love the harp. I love playing the harp. It's very much my instrument, but I want to unpack what people assume a harp is supposed to sound like or how it's supposed to be played or how it's supposed to look or because it's heavy connotation, especially in sort of Western music culture about what a harp is supposed to do. And a lot of that's like purity and, you know, it's, it's just like 
angelicness and um, because I was dealing with dark themes on this record and misgivings and and I'm not I like the enchanting part of it obviously but I didn't want that to be equated automatically with like goodness as a ideal I guess which it often is in imagery anyway right it's it's so interesting to me though because the harp the the sound it makes is such a natural fit for so many different types of music and so it seems funny to me that it's such an exotic thing i don't know or maybe am i wrong actually well no i mean the harp is potentially one of the oldest instruments i think ethnomusicologists believe that the harp and the bow the harp as an instrument and the bow as a weapon were kind of simultaneous or even that the musical instrument came before the the tool instrument and almost all other instruments are based on some kind of stretched membrane either between two sticks or or coming off of or stretched over some kind of resonating chamber so it's a very old concept like the earliest harp is just a bow with one string uh, and then you know a piano is a harp inside of a inside of a case with hammers on it so and I, and I think that's also why those connotations are there because it is actually very ancient and it has very deep deep roots that people respond to and it has been repeated in imagery all over the world um, and it has such a beautiful sound I think people almost associate it with like the divine gift of music or whatever it is that's I think that's why it often appears in in illuminations of music being played um, so and that's all that's all great <laughs> um, I'm I'm happy I'm playing one of the world's oldest instruments but um, my issue is with yeah is with the implied purity or moral kind of um, attachment that the instrument has, which it seemed to have picked up from being, you know, a great amount of our music history is religious music. So I've also kind of collected harp music for a long time. And because, you know, if you're a guitar player, there's like so much to choose from from modern music of great guitar players that have been doing amazing things. Um, but for me, when I'm looking at modern music, there are some great harp players that I've kind of found, but I'm often just listening to other kinds of music and thinking, does this sound, or could the harp sound like this? But then through that, I've also been like, what other cultures have harp and like, how do they play it? And there's like South American harp and there's African harp and there's, you know, lots of stuff that isn't necessarily under that, like the, it's not the angel's harp that you see in the orchestra or whatever. And there are people who are playing harp in, the orchestra who are amazing and there's like one of the first harp cds i got that was actually kind of before my time was my uncle and aunt bought a xena parkins harp record for me um they were like they went into the music store this was before there was google and they're like a jazz harp and and they gave me this crazy experimental free jazz like noise album which is what Zena Parkins does, who plays with Bjork and stuff. And, um, and you know, that was like, that was like blowing my like 10 or 11 year old mind or whatever it was. It was like, this is a, the harp could be this too. So yeah, I think it's very versatile, but I think people are used to hearing it played a certain way. <laughs> and, and because it does that thing very well that it does. So um, yeah, but I've, I've tried 
to do different things with it, hopefully. Well, and I think it's harder for you to escape from that because your your music is very lyrical. And even when you're dealing with these really complicated emotions and things are struggling for, for resolution, it still actually can sound very pretty. Well, and I think it's also, it is applied unequally to the genders. <laughs> I would say that like being a woman who plays a harp, you know, has certain pitfalls, right? Um, and, uh, or being a woman who plays, who chooses to play, like I have no issue with my music being beautiful. I don't think that's a problem. I have an issue with people assuming that because it's beautiful, it has no substance, um, that it's just a veneer. And that's, I think, so much easier to do when you add like she plays a harp and she's like wearing a pretty dress and like whatever all this stuff you know like that stuff also works very well like that is compelling and people respond to that but that's not all I want to say you know I have been the person who's worn the medieval dress and played music like you know on the on the ocean or whatever like I've done those things but I also I want I do want the message to get out of what I'm saying and I feel like there are (laughs) There are obstacles that happen. And I think there is also women who don't get to play the music they might want to play because they want to be taken seriously. So they are taking on a more masculine or a more traditionally masculine form of music or they're playing something harder or heavier just so that they, they're they not being lumped into this like pretty girl category or whatever it is, which I have, like, I don't want to have to do that. I want to still be able to make beautiful music, music that's impactful, music that is affecting and be able to like take advantage of my history and, you know, the ancient, the ancient instrument that I play. But because of that, I am acutely aware of how easy it would be it should be to typecast me as like beautiful woman who plays the harp, which has been like most of my existence as a musician. And so the solo album, like I did, I have played for many years. I recorded a whole album when I was 20 that I never released. I, um, you know, I played sort of in hotels and for weddings and that kind of stuff throughout my career. And then I studied jazz music and then I played in some rock bands. So I feel like I'm coming back to the music I might have played earlier um, with a little bit of where, more aware, like a more refined sense of how I want to speak about it and how I want to present it, which is where the visual art part comes in too, because that gives me a really good tool to kind of help form people's overall impression of what I'm trying to say. Right. I mean, the irony is that if people were to hear your music, they would immediately recognize that it isn't this light, fluffy image that, that you were describing. I don't know many harpists in contemporary music today. Do you ever listen to Joanna Newsom? She struggles with some of the same typecasting that I'm afraid of. People think, and she's a fantastic player and a fantastic writer. And, and she is not shying away from having like a weird cutesy sounding like she's got if you were talking about Kate Bush comparisons like I would say she's got like a strange sounding weird elfin voice that um a lot of people kind of want to pigeonhole as being like this very genre-y kind of thing which is terrible and it has nothing to do with her value as a musician it has everything to do with society wanting to put her in 
this like neat little box, you know? And I think one of the unfortunate things about harp playing um, is that people don't have a reference for what's crazy good harp playing, right? Which she is an incredible musician. So people just think, oh, I hear this sound, this harp sound and this strange, interesting, unusual tweety voice. And it just sounds too weird for me and too girly or something. <laughs> um, without actually like, you know, if, if, if we had more people playing the harp in, in, in the sort of, and now we do a little bit, we're getting there, but in the sort of pop genre, you'd see that she's actually just like a really good player and excellent technician and is very skilled and is a great songwriter. Um, but she's, like I said, she's, she's often just plunked like as by rote, like under like genre E weird harp playing girl. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's interesting because there's kind of like an accepted voice, like a singing voice that is very popular. And then there. And then anyone who strays outside of that, I feel like, and maybe this is me just having a bone to pick feminist wise, but I feel like women are not given the same freedom to explore an unusual or unique voice as men are. Um, and I really value that. I mean, I'm classically trained, so, you know, I have my own, like, I wouldn't say my voice is the most unique necessarily all the time. I feel like, um, but like, I really love someone like Björk who plays, who has a very strange, unusual voice. She came up through like punk music. So she kind of earned this like strange screamo-y style that she has, but she had to go through this like really like bro-y kind of culture to do it. Right. And, um, uh, and Kate Bush also a lot of criticism for the way that she sang and the strain, you know, because it wasn't based on a masculine style necessarily, um, so I don't know, I, it's so hard to know what to say about those things because there's so many different ways you can interpret even this kind of conversation. But I feel like um, I really like it when someone just goes balls out and is like this, <laughs> bad metaphor, but you know, when it's like, this is my voice and it's strange and it's weird, and it's whatever. Um, and I'm all for women who are going to do that. Whatever, wherever that goes, if that's like weird and um, if it's a hyper feminization of something or it, as an archetype, right? Because it's, it's all fluid or whatever, but, um, or if they're growly and strange, like another, um, another person I think is amazing is this South American um, musician called Ima Sumac, who like, when she sang, she was like, a wrapped up in that fifties kind of, um, tiki music, like fascination, but she kind of growls and she like makes all sorts of strange noises while she's singing. And she sings like jazz kind of samba-y kind of stuff. Um, and I just thought her voice was amazing too. Cause it's just, she's just doing things like a, the voice is ultimately an instrument, right? Um, but it is the most personally mess withable instrument, right? Like it, it, it's as individual as our bodies are. There's no standardization. Like even a harp, it, you know, comes with a certain format and has certain kinds of tunings and whatever. Whereas a human voice can be like, really, we, we do not give it, we do not, we're not even really we barely touch the iceberg, especially in pop music. Like we, we talk about all this expression and how we're, uh, I think a lot of pop musicians talk about how they're like really groundbreaking or whatever. They're doing something crazy and it's like anti-establishment, but we we are very narrow in how what we're willing to accept the human voice doing. <laughs> and it can do a lot of much stranger things. <laughs> 
Yeah, and then to the op, you know, to take it to the to the extreme um, with this auto tune craze, and it's just like if you know, if people are not standard enough, we are going to alter them to fit this even narrower approximation of of what people supposedly want. Well, and I think we're because because we're a we are we're talking about patterns at the beginning, and I think human beings just so if there's anything we respond to we're we're predisposed to respond to patterns um and to be really interested in them and uh so i think there is within that a kind of like a feeling that that we need to fit our own work into those patterns and I think there are people for whom those patterns are very helpful and useful, and they are um, important. I think that it's just as important, though, to see the pattern and use it as a jumping off point to create a new one. I don't think you get a new innovation, really, anywhere, unless you break a pattern, or which means you really have to understand it. I think it's different than just sort of rebelling against something. Um, and... Uh, I think that happens sort of probably it has to kind of happen organically. Like, I think it's true. You like, you might be forming your own voice around kind of this expectation of what it's supposed to sound like. And then eventually once you've sort of learned or understand how that works, you can then start dropping it. But I don't know. It's, it's um, having sort of been educated in the arts which is weird that you can even educate someone in it because it's it's so supposed to be all about innovation, but I do feel like you need to learn. You cannot properly critique or dismantle something unless you've really genuinely venerated it and studied how it works. Like I think we're in a pitfall situation where everyone thinks everything is super groundbreaking and they're just repeating <laughs> something that was done, I don't know, five years ago or something, right? Like, I think you can't, you can't really set the signposts of what you're trying to, what you're trying to respond to, because I don't actually think anything is really, I don't think originality is, is what we think it is. <laughs> I don't think originality is about difference. It's about, like, it's about choosing a direction that is based off of something else. And that creates like a new synthesis of things. Yeah. Well, in my experience, sitting down with your album, um, you know, I would get transported and swept away by these different parts of it. And and it would take, I would have to go through the same song so many times just to be able to make it through the song once, if that makes sense. And... Um, because certain parts of it will be, um, and I'm not a musician, so I don't necessarily deconstruct it the way I would try to maybe deconstruct a story and look at the mechanics. But um, but I would pay attention to certain parts of it, and then and something would I would be just like emotionally affected in a way that would I would then realize later that I was no longer paying attention in the same way that I've been paying attention before. And, um, and it's almost like the repetition allows me to maybe experience it intellectually and emotionally, but I can't really do those at the same time. They're complementary intelligences, I think, but, um, 
but being in one prevents me from maybe being able to utilize the other. The best thing I can hope for with a record is that someone sits down and just listens to it. Like, it, I would give up fame and fortune for just knowing that that would happen. And that's so... It seems very unlikely in today's world that that's actually going to happen. So when someone tells me they listen to the record and that they listen to it more than once and that's all they did, I'm, that's just like the best possible thing that could ever occur because that's really all I want. You know, I, there's not a lot of money in the business, you know. I don't think there are many benefits even to fame, even if you had it. The only real one is that you get the resources so you can continue to do it at a high level right? And like, really, the best thing that can happen, I think for any artist is just that someone is with their work, and takes the time to extract whatever meaning they get from it, which could be totally different. But that you're not going to get it unless you just sit there with it. And you have whatever experience you have. And, and it does whatever it does. <laughs> like, I can't predict what it's going to do. Uh, it's really interesting to hear people. But I, I can tell you that the best possible chance that it's going to do whatever it's going to do is if you just listen. One of the biggest things for me is just being so grateful that people took the time and they care. You know, I mean, I, I feel like I cannot express that enough, like that it it's not necessarily easy <laughs> to to do this. And, you know, it would be easy... I guess in some ways it's easier to be like, I did all of this and aren't I so great? And like, this is the thing that I did. But like, I just because of my history, I'm like, there was no way I could have done this without people. It's Which is ironic because of the name, the Hermitess, that I was like, this is one that I'm going to put my name and my stamp on. And it really hasn't changed the way that I work that much other than just what I know I want out of the project being so much clearer than when you're doing it collaboratively and you kind of have to make that decision with other people. Um, you know, I've still got to work with amazing other artists. I've got to pay them so that they can pursue their own stuff in their own way. Yeah, it's been, I just can't even imagine. It's, it's hard. The hardest part of it for me is claiming that it was something that I did on my own because it just has no life without the people that like a the people that give it the time to listen to it and be the, all the people that like made it come into being from the people who gave me the residency to the people who allowed me to record in their studio and my my engineer and all the musicians that played on it like the fact that it has and that's also why it's nice that it has this archetypal name rather than like my my personal name because it's it is a story and it's it's a story that is told with a singular voice but that has so much um that has so many other people's input. Um, you know, no man is, no man or woman is an island, and that's really how I feel about it. It's just, like, it's baffling to me, and I think it's also a big, a big problem for me about the way we culturally deliver things in our society, <laughs> that I'm the spokesperson for it, and that I made it, it's not something I want to get away from, but that there, there seems to be a lack of mechanisms for expressing gratitude and sharing credit sometimes when it comes to anything that is of this size getting from idea to like actual out there as an object or as a piece of work um 
yeah, so, and I, you know, and that continues, like, all the people that made the record, and then everyone that cares about it, and then talks about it from now until wherever it goes, like, <laughs> it's kind, it kind of makes, it like, kind of makes my mind explode a little bit, because it just doesn't, it means nothing without that, like, you know, I could work, work my ass off in the forest by myself as the hermitess, but unless it gets to the point where it actually gets realized in some form, um, then it, it's only ever a benefit to me, which is still super valuable. Um, um, but it's really nice to see it go out into the world and to have other people take it on and care about it and talk about it. That is great. I've been asking everybody, did you read the house journals? I did. I was When I was listening to you talk about it last time with, with the or with on the first podcast with the couple you were talking about I was trying to think it made me think about what I had read and I think one of the most interesting things is that I was uh someone had obviously sent their record which I planned to do to the hill house to play there um and it was a guy called wilder maker and so I found his entry in the journal which was um, which where he talked about his what I kind of found, which is the work ethic of just being able to work, like to sit down and write, and how you could just approach it that way as a kind of you could give yourself work and then just get it done. So that's the most the brightest memory I have from the journals is combining the music he made with like that. I don't know if that was the album he wrote when he was at the Hill House or if it was just one that he had, but it was interesting to read about his writing process in the journal and then listen to his music at the same time or just after. That was a super interesting thing to be able to do. Oh, that's great. Can you tell me what you learned at Hill House? That thing about time, just that you will, if you spend the time on the thing you care about most, for the most part, I don't think you you can fail. Like, you won't know unless you give yourself the time. You, at least you won't know if you're going to fail or if you're going to succeed unless you actually take the time. And I, like I said, those misgivings, I went not knowing. Like, I went after a period of really feeling challenged and, like, I didn't know what my path was going to be as an artist. Like, I was like, I know I want to be an artist, but I just have no idea how I'm going to do that in the world. And I still don't really, <laughs> but I feel like I've made something that is a good case for why I should continue to do it. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, and it was just, you know, I mean, the wonderful thing about the Hill House, which is what I'm super grateful for, is just the gift of the gift of that time and, you know, not having to worry and have the food, the house stocked and having all that space to work. You know, it was a gift that I gave both to myself for finding that opportunity and applying, going through the process and getting there. But it was also, you know, it's just really nice. It's really nice to have an opportunity where someone gives you that kind of gift without any expectation. Like here, just have this space and this time to work. We don't care, you know, if you produce anything or whatever. Because I think in my researching of residencies, there's a lot of collaborative residencies or themed residencies or one where you're supposed to meet a bunch of people and you're supposed to do a bunch of things. Um, and not that those aren't don't have their place, but I really just needed, like, I just needed a very specific, very isolated context in order to do what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, just having 
both seeking out and having someone be able to offer me that time and that space was a really big deal at the time. And like probably, yeah, contributed hugely to my emotional well-being as an artist and continuing to see through my own creative visions and and believe in my own creative self-worth. And I think I also learned that um, because of that kind of voice listening, that the most important thing for me is not, because I think it's so easy when you're, and I'm going through that right now because I'm promoting the album, to like get really focused on comparing yourself to other people and what they're doing or whether or not you got like enough likes on your post or all that weird stuff. And what the time at the Hill House really helped me do is just like to remember to bring it way back in and be, and remind myself that I'm the one like who needs to feel that I've, I've done right by my own creative ideas. Like that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many likes I got on, on Facebook or how many people listen to the album or how many people write about the album. It just matters. Did I make a piece of work that I'm satisfied with? Because I think if I did that, then the, even if it's three people that it speaks to, it will speak to those three people authentically, you know? Because I've done a lot of, like, you know, I felt like the period before that was a lot of contortion to, like, trying to chase this, like, what am I supposed to be doing? You know, like a lot of, a lot of um, you know, in a group project, trying to position ourselves in the right way, you know, um, to make it... S- were like to make it successful and that just to me um it was a it was a painful process to go through because um it's just very hard to um stay focused on what you you want to make if you're also trying to please a whole bunch of other people so it's nice to be able to just to know that just pleasing yourself and 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 really trying to stay focused on what you are trying to accomplish and follow that through to its inevitable conclusion is hopefully actually going to be the thing that's going to be the most resonant for other people. Whereas the more you get kind of allow yourself to get kind of yanked around (laughs) by other people's expectations or what's cool or what's going to look like hip or that. I just think that stuff is, it's inevitably just going to pull you down. Like it's, it's a, it's a dangerous cycle to get into because it has, it's can, there's nothing wrong with being cool, but like trying to chase that is, is not ever productive in my experience. (laughs) It would be, I feel like I should mention something just because it's got such a strong relationship to your last podcast about tarot cards, because, um, this, the Hermitess archetype comes from a tarot card. And actually one of the forms you can get the card in, the album in, is a tarot card. So I've made, my download cards are actually tarot cards. Um, and they have four, six different versions of the archetype on them. Um, and right now they're not available in any other way than like if you badger me for them because it's just mostly for my live shows, but... But it's interesting because your previous um, interviewees were talking about making a tarot card deck. And uh, one of the really neat things that I think is super fascinating about digital transference over the internet of music 
aside from all of the difficulties it's caused for musicians, is that the music is now emancipated from the object that makes the sound. So you can create an album, which is anything. Like, it, And as a visual artist, that's actually a really interesting challenge because my album could come in the form of like a teacup. So the relationship, the material culture relationship between like have this musical experience and interact with this thing has just like gotten just crazy. <laughs> And I mean, I'm using, I made tarot cards, which are a very, you know, a download card is a fairly, it's a, it's not that far of a leap, a leap, but for me, it's really exciting to be able to take this thing, which was part of the inspiration for the story and then deliver the music in that format um, and have people be able to slip that card into a deck or continue making that deck with other records in the future Um and have that be like another way I can tell the story, which is super interesting. If you build a story around to hold a certain meaning, you can create a form of magic from that. You create a vessel that holds a certain experience that then becomes meaningful to other people, hopefully. Yeah. And then, you know, those, the, the strongest of those stories are what seed our superstitions because they are things that have been, um, have affected people in a similar way for such a long time that they then become this sort of story, the, the stuff of folk legend or, or kind of moral tales or whatever. And like the, like the imagery in the tarot, those are all based on archetypes, which are reoccurring themes that happen in stories about all the way across the world in different kinds of cultures. Um, so I think that's, they're like, they can almost, just the idea of them can help you generate a story without actually having all of the events have to be the same, which I think is really interesting. So do we like just count to three and then hang up? I think that's probably the best way to do it. Good. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Here's Jennifer Crichton with her new song, Vampires.
That was Vampires by Jennifer Crichton from her new album, Hermitess. Please check it out online at hermitess.band, where you can watch the video for her new song, Blood Moon, and be sure to follow the link to Bandcamp, where you can purchase her album on vinyl, cassette, and via digital download. That's hermitess.band. And now we have arrived at the third the spot where I get to give the artist's new work and upcoming events a little push. I am particularly pleased to be able to share a new song, which was written at Hill House. Eric Jarvis is a songwriter, singer, and multi-instrumentalist whose new EP, Ancient Future, will be released in the coming weeks. I'll be talking with Eric in Episode 5, which airs on June 23rd. This is the second track, called Crew. It's a mighty fine place 
That was Crew by Eric Jarvis from his upcoming release, Ancient Future. Please check him out online at eric-jarvis.com. That's eric with a k-jarvis.com. Okay. That's it for the third episode of Artists of Hill House. My thanks again to our Hill House resident, Emily Patinas, and also to Eric Jarvis for letting us hear a song from his new EP. And thanks to Jeannie Voller and all of the great people at Crosshatch, whose mission is to build strong communities through the intersections of art, farming, ecology, and economy. 
Crosshatch provides resources for our community to become stronger, more self-reliant, and more native to place. For more information about Crosshatch and their many programs, please visit them at crosshatch.org. And special thanks to the band Charming Disaster for letting me use their song, What Remains, to open and close the show. Find them on the web at charmingdisaster.com. If you'd like to get in touch with me about anything that you've heard on the show, you can email me at sean at about45degrees.org. And please check out my site where you can stream, download, or comment on the show, discover some new things to listen to, and explore links to other great things. Visit about45degrees.org. Please subscribe to Artists of Hill House on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. I'll be back in two weeks when I'll be sitting down with the composer and musician Anthony Barilla, and I'll also be talking with Eric Jarvis, who is celebrating the release of his new EP, Ancient Future, which was written at Hill House. It's going to be a great pair of shows. Thanks for listening. Ted Berrigan says, whatever's going to happen is already happening, which is exactly why I would encourage you to be kind to yourselves. <laughs> <laughs>